Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Wonderful job up there. If you'd like to pull out a Bible and turn to the book of Acts, um, in this time and in this generation, we are praying for movement from God in our region. We're praying for a movement of the Holy Spirit. So we're studying Acts, and we're saying, how do movements like that work? How does the Holy Spirit work through people who say yes to Him, people who step forward by faith and let Him lead? people who depend on him, like we just sang. So the book of Acts is full of stories of not only the first people who received the Holy Spirit in that sense, but the stories of those who followed them, the stories of how they multiplied, uh, the stories that really form the foundation of the movement we're still a part of today, but now looking forward, saying, Lord, how do you want us in this generation to respond to you in obedience and in faith to go out with the gospel? Okay, so as we read today's text, and by the way, I, at the beginning of the summer, we, we committed that we'll read every verse of the book of Acts this summer in church, right? Which if you do the math, that's actually quite a few verses to read. And I know a few of you have brought up Pastor Dell a few weeks ago, skipped a large section, and that means I have to figure out creatively how to bring that back somewhere before the end of the summer, flow it in, and it's going to happen, all right? So... By the time we get to the end of the summer, every verse of the book of Acts will have been read out loud in here, and uh, hopefully it'll all work out. But as we're reading, we're not just reading because it's great history, it is, we're reading because we want to know our future, like, Lord, where do you want to take us from here? All right, so we're going to read with eyes of faith, and here's what's fun about today's text. Uh, at last week, uh, Pastor Dell brought us what I think is the linchpin, or maybe you could say the remaining piece that needed to get into place so that the gospel movement that was in Jerusalem could actually become a global movement, right? Peter and the other Jerusalem-based disciples of Jesus had to get it through their mind and past their culture that the gospel and the way of Jesus was not just for the Jews, it's actually for everyone, everywhere, every kind of person, no matter who you are. And once they figured that out, the gospel movement exploded globally. And that's what we're going to start to see as we keep reading in the narrative, chapter 11, verse 19, going forward. The other thing we'll notice as we go is the story starts to feel a little bit out of control, almost like a movie with too many characters to exactly follow what's going on, because that is what was happening. Uh, so many people were turning to Christ, and so many people were being filled with the Holy Spirit and moving in different directions that Luke, who's trying to catalog all this, remember, he's trying to describe the Christian movement to some Roman official somewhere. He, he's having to say, okay, Peter was over here doing this. Meanwhile, Barnabas was doing this. Oh yeah, and meanwhile, there were other people going here. And, uh, and so as we read, we sense this, the, the expansion of the gospel. It's no longer one narrative of like, here's what's going on at the church. It's here's what's going on as a sampling across the region and eventually across the world of how God is working. And we're still a part of something like that now. There'd be no way for us to track how God is working globally right now. Right? We can barely keep track of what God is doing in our midst, let alone kind of catalog the whole thing. So it gets pretty exciting as we go, starting in verse 19, which is page 662, if you're using one of the seat Bibles. Chapter 11, verse 19, meanwhile, the believers who'd been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death, back in chapter 7, travel, traveled as far as Phoenicia, 
Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the Word of God, but only to Jews. Hey, there wasn't anything necessarily bad about this. They, they were Jews. They would go to new areas. They would find the synagogue, kind of find the people that were like them and had some cultural commonality and sit down and say, let us tell you about the Messiah. Well, that's great, but here's the problem. They were missing the majority of the populations of these places, and, and, and they hadn't gotten the message, at least not quite yet, that the gospel doors were really wide open. But just as God worked in the household of Cornelius in chapter 10, and through Peter to preach the gospel and bring the Holy Spirit there, God was doing a similar type of miracle for all these other believers who were out in all these new places. So we read, verse 20, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard all that had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Now remember back at the very end of chapter 4, who was Barnabas and where was he? Barnabas was a member of that early, early Christian church, and he was apparently into real estate. He had a field in Jerusalem he sold his field and brought the money to the apostles to help support the church. Remember that? So now that he's clear of the real estate business, he's free to go on mission. So the church here is sending him out, and his life is about to get way more exciting, as we'll discover in the weeks to come. Uh, but Barnabas is being used by God in some exciting ways. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and both of them stayed there with the church for a full year teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Some historians will look back and say that originally was almost a derogatory term, kind of making fun of them, like, hey, you're like little Christ. You're like copying Jesus. And they're like, you know what? I, I kind of like that. That is what we're doing. And it seems like the term stuck, right? So we go to verse 27. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up at one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders at the church in Jerusalem. Interesting aside here is the basis of their giving was actually not that the need had already arisen and they were responding. On what basis were they sending this money? The prophecy that the need was going to be there. So in faith, they're like, wow, if God is saying there's going to be a need, we're going to meet that need. And they, they're already sending help before the need was already, or before the need was apparent. So now we get to chapter 12. Verse 1, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with the sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. He imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. So, quick math problem. How many people is that? 
16, that's like a lot of military horsepower to keep Peter in check, right? So pretty high-profile prisoner here. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. The chains fell off his wrists, and the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals, and he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was really happening. Now, you do have to give Peter credit. He did just have a pretty significant vision in the last couple chapters, right? So we, he's used to this now, and he's thinking, okay, this is pretty fantastic what's happening. God, what are you trying to tell me here? What's the lesson? And I mean, you, you might have been there. Once in a great while, if you're kind of aware of your dreams, in your dream, you're like, wait a minute, I think I'm dreaming, right? Has that ever happened to anybody? And then you wake up and you're like, man, I kind of wanted to find out how the story was going to end. But, the, but here's Peter. He's like, I don't think this is real. But he's walking out and, and miracle after miracle starts to happen. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door at the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back and told everyone inside, Peter is outside at the door. Now, you have to think, um, here, here they're at this prayer meeting. What are they probably praying about? I mean, it doesn't specifically say, but, I mean, the, Peter's kind of headline news that he's in prison. James had just been killed. Everybody knew that's pretty much what was going to happen to Peter. This, this servant girl, Peter's at the door. And, of course, what's their response? You know, faith-filled people just like you and me. You're out of your mind, they said. And when she insisted, they decided, ah, it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. Okay, you can imagine this discussion going on behind the closed door. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James, now this is a second James, right? There's two Jameses in the story here. One, sadly, had just been martyred. Uh, The other one was what some people would say might be like the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church or certainly one of the key figures there who's leading things. So Peter says, hey, tell James, we're clear, I'm out. Uh, This miracle has happened. And then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod sadly interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Couldn't handle the stress. Said, man, this is too much for me. I'm out. All right, so now Herod was very angry. This is a little bit of a different track in the story. Herod's very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent on Herod's country for food. The delegates won support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, 
and an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes and sat on his throne, and he made a great speech to them. And the people gave him an ovation, saying, It's the voice of a god, not a man. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. So when Luke was writing all of this, remember, he was writing to a Roman official this account of how the church was growing. And so he's interweaving, you know, church history with a little bit of Roman history here. Just say, hey, these are, you know, this is parallel to these events. So people probably had heard the horror story of what happened to Agrippa. What they didn't realize was that at the same time that was happening, the kingdom of God was unmoved, right? I mean, empires rise and fall, emperors rise and fall, uh, movements come, movements go, but the kingdom of God is just plowing right through. Nothing seems to stop or slow down the advance of the Christian faith. Verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. Among the prophets and teachers at the church of Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Mayan, a childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. Kind of a diverse leadership team here at this particular church in Antioch of Syria. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work in which I've called them, So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. And that's going to inaugurate the next big movement here in the book of Acts, way beyond the original location of where all of the stories of Jesus and the very early church came. Now Paul and Barnabas are going to start moving across what we now would refer to as the Roman world or the European world, the Mediterranean world, carrying the gospel with them. And as they're doing that, There are many other people out on mission spreading the gospel. I love verse 4, which is where we'll pick this up next week. But look at the first sentence of it. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the church, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually the one who's writing this story. So it wasn't that the church leaders got together and made a great plan and they were carrying out their plan. They were following the Holy Spirit. And as they followed him, the gospel started to multiply, and what was once a message in kind of a local community became a movement that touched the whole world. So a couple questions that I wanted to ask us as we are at a pivot point in the book of Acts here, right, where things are about to go global. Uh, What have we learned so far about the Christian movement through Acts? Like, what are we noticing? A lot of people in the story... There are, there are people we might look back and say they were kind of heroic, but I think that's just because they're the stories that are written. That there were people suffering and serving and seeing miracles happen all over the place, and we don't even know their names. The Holy Spirit is the hero. And the story is being written in ways that no one could have anticipated. And I believe the same dynamics are supposed to be true for us today, right here in our church that we would expect the Holy Spirit to operate that way and we would follow him and say, Lord, I, I might have my preferences or like my idea of what we should do, but Lord, this is your gospel and your movement and so we want to be in step with you. 
One, one book that has really helped me understand how the gospel movement advanced through the book of Acts, but also takes, takes a look at how that same kind of movement is replicated in mission advances throughout church history, is this book called Movements That Changed the World by Steve Addison. If you're a reader, if you're interested in this stuff, I would recommend reading that book. It's very fascinating, and it shows you what all of the movements of the Holy Spirit throughout history have in common. Okay? Why is it that in some places, among some people, it seems like there's supernatural work that happens? Well, what, what ties all of that together? So this author has five things that are in common between spiritual movement starting in Acts, and then you could look at different eras of church history when there were great advances. You could even look today around the world at places where there are spiritual awakenings and there are great movements of church planting and disciple-making. You say, what's happening there that's not seeming to happen here? Well, five things. All right, you ready? We're going to walk through them. And I want you to think, as we look at these, where we've seen them in Acts so far. Okay, the first characteristic common across mission movements is white-hot hearts. As people are so bought in, that this isn't just people who say, wow, that's great, send me your newsletter. Uh, these are people who are all in, right? They're, they're giving the best of their energy. They're giving everything they've got. They're giving their very soul to this mission. And, so, and the reason they're doing that is that their heart is on fire for the gospel. Their heart is on fire for love. They, they, the, the Holy Spirit is working through them and something supernatural has happened inside of them, that's why they're on fire. That's where the heat comes from. So you see that. You see, that's why people were willing to lay everything down. That's why Stephen and James were willing to face martyrdom with such confidence, like without even flinching. That, that's why the, all the people that surrounded them when those martyrdoms happened, rather than cowering in fear, they actually amped up their communication of the gospel and they started spreading it everywhere. Their hearts were hot with the power and fire of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the second thing that Christian movements have in common is a commitment to the cause. Uh, people who have, they've set aside their other priorities. People like Barnabas sold out of his old life. But people who walked away from their fishing business like Peter did. Uh, people who said, you know what, Lord, wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm fully committed to you. And that level of commitment is what propels the movement forward. It's what gets the message out. So it's, it's not enough for a movement to occur for a whole bunch of people to agree. Like, wow, wow, we're all for that. Like the gospel for Berrien County. Who's, who's in? Well, sure, we're all in. We all agree with that. Um, but are we committed to the cause in the sense that will we step forward with our lives and go all in for Christ? Okay, the third aspect of mission movements is contagious relationships, which is interesting. As we're reading Acts, we see some of those, right? Barnabas and Saul, Peter, Mary, John, Mark. There's these characters that start appearing, Philip, Stephen, James. All of these people are in this network. They're not necessarily, they're not necessarily in like some sort of reporting structure like an organization. They're just fellow disciples who are empowered by the Holy Spirit that together are walking into mission. And sometimes they're on mission together, literally, like Barnabas and Saul. Sometimes they're just fans of one another, but they're not out there operating on their own or building their own little micro-organization. They're part of a movement that's way beyond any one of them. And that, those type of relationships just keep multiplying. 
Right? So every new city that they visit, every new village that hears the gospel, now there's more people who are on the team. And, and our church here, like the people around us right now, we're, we're like the local team, but this isn't it, right? There's thousands of people, there's millions of people across the world that are on our team. There might be some thousands of additional people who are on our team in this region. We say together, we're all serving the Holy Spirit's purpose. So Lord, how do you want to use me on the team? And who do I need to know? How do I work together with others to do that? Hey, the fourth of five here is rapid mobilization. When a movement is happening, there's not time to stop and solidify institutions and organizations. In fact, as this author walks through the marks of movements, says one of the enemies of a movement is actually the institutionalization of the things that are working. So you see something that works and you're like, hey, that's great, let's add it to our constitution. <laughs> or, hey, that's great, let's build a monument and say that's what we are. Let's define ourselves by that method. And that's how movements die, right? Because the, this is the adaptive, sort of ever-moving flow of the Holy Spirit. So we say, Lord, everything's on the table, we're open. That leads to the, the last piece of this that we would observe through mission movements and we see it in Acts is adaptive methods. Nobody locked down and said it has to happen this way now. No, there were all sorts of doors opening and no one knew what was going to come next. They were just committed to the gospel and to love and to following the steps of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, I believe, as I know many of you do, and that's why we're in the midst of this series and why we've been taking the steps we have as a church, that we need a mission movement in our generation. We need a mission movement in our region. Right, so we're not talking, about, sure, we need mission movements on the other side of the world. We can support those. But here, now, in this place, we need to be acting the way those Book of Acts believers acted if, if we want to be able to see the Holy Spirit work the way that they saw Him work. So a little imagination exercise here. We, we can see from the Book of Acts and the little vignettes that were given by Luke as he writes it, what a movement felt like in first century Jerusalem, Judea, and then the surrounding region, right? That's what we're reading about. So imagine what would a spiritual movement look like in southwest Michigan today? What kind of stories would we be hearing? What kind of sacrifices might we be making? How would we be engaging in something like that? If the same level of spiritual intensity white hot hearts, commitment to the cause, we're all all in. If that started to happen here, what would we expect to see? It's actually the, the easiest part of that imagination is imagining how would we do church differently. Say, man, well, everything would somehow be more or be stronger, be better. But, but where I actually think the rubber meets the road is not here at church. It's actually everywhere but here in church. How would we be different in our homes, in our friendships, how would we act different? How would we speak differently? How would the school change? How would the, your business change? How would your interaction with neighbors change? You, you might imagine in that scenario, the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully in southwest Michigan. Who, who would become Christians? I mean, I, I don't know who would become a Christian, but I would imagine there would be some miraculous testimonies of people coming to Christ, right? And, and who would be being sent? Who, who, who's the next Barnabas that right now is just owning a field somewhere, not realizing that there's a huge plan coming soon for their life. See, when we let go 
of trying to control everything, and we say, Holy Spirit, we want, we want to walk with you into the future, we, we get to trust him with the answers to these questions. And we get to live a life that I think would be equally exciting to anything that happened in the book of Acts. So what I want to do is ask a question, and then as we wrap up, we're going to walk backwards through those five things as a prayer and as a challenge. All right, so here's the question. Do we have the faith to ask the Holy Spirit for a movement? Let's kind of realize what's on the line here. Potentially, a gospel movement will disrupt what we think is normal. Potentially, we would have to change a lot of things, maybe everything. Your life would change, my life would change, our sense of priorities would change, our church would change. That's the price of stepping forward toward movement. If you say, I want to lock down what I like, you'd be great at building an institution, but you won't probably be part of a movement. So what will that look like? And what kind of steps do we take? So we're going to go backwards now. Remember, adaptive methods was the fifth thing all these movements have in common. Holy Spirit, would you help us see our need for adaptive methods? See, I think it's all, the Holy Spirit does have to help us with this. Just like he had to help Peter understand that he needed to go preach to the Gentiles last week. Right? Because we tend to like our methods. Even what we're doing right now is a common method of how church feels, right? Maybe we keep doing that, but we could put that on the table and say, Lord, do you want us to change anything about this? The way we've organized our church, the way that we think about outreach, the way we think about planning, the way that we organize our own personal lives, the number of hours we dedicate to Jesus versus other things, like all of that's on the table. And we say, Lord, in humility, I'm willing to learn new things. I'm willing to adapt. One thing that's really challenging for churches, especially as organizations, is that when a method works and you say, great, let's do it again next year and call it annual, you could get stuck in a rut 50 years later doing things that just aren't going to work, but you believe they have to work because it used to work, right? So we say, no, Lord, we don't, we don't want to fall into ruts like that. That's, that's ultimately how churches die and movements stop, right? So, Lord, help us to always be approaching every new season with a fresh sense of your calling. What do you want us to do next? Uh, that's what allows us to start innovating as well. well. Once you've chosen humility, you can innovate because you're not tied to, you don't have to like defend what you used to do and have a bunch of pride about it. Say, no, it's all on the table. We'll celebrate what happened before. We're going to move forward into something new. Okay? Holy Spirit, we need the faith for rapid mobilization. We have to equip everyone to go. So what, what can happen is you can kind of select out the, whatever, the top performers, the super spiritual or whatever, if that even exists, and say, those people should go. Like, let's get them special training and let's send them away. Sometimes that's appropriate, but those aren't really super spiritual people. They're just people that say yes, and God calls them in a specific direction, just like Barnabas and Saul were called to go out. But everyone in the church has to be equipped to go. So we all say, I, I have a role to play. Lord, how, how do you want me to be a testimony? Uh, how do you want me to take advantage of those divine appointments and actually be on mission no matter what I'm doing? And we get started now. The, the key word there is rapid, right? If, if, something is, if something needs to happen, it needs to happen right away. We start moving in faith, not wait for 
bluer skies, greener pastures, more money, everything to work out. Obviously, we balance all this with wisdom, but we move forward aggressively when we're a part of a movement. Hey, Holy Spirit, w- would you help us develop contagious relationships? So the people we're sitting around, we're not just like, hey, that, I've seen that person before in church. Uh, we come and we sit and we soak together. That's not Christianity, right? You could just, you could just do that online if you want. If, all, if it's just about being fed, just be fed online. But if you want to be a part of a team that's going to change the world, that's what church is. So we come here to be mobilized. We come here to be filled so that we can go. So we invest in each other. We inspire each other. Hebrews says, keep meeting. As long as, as long as Jesus hasn't come yet, keep meeting and inspire one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so you look around and you say, the reason I'm coming to church is so that I'll be mobilized and so that I can network with other people who are mobilized and together we can make more, uh, we can make more progress for the kingdom than we could if we kept operating separately. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with commitment to the cause? so that we can be just as generous as they were in Acts and just as much good news as they were in Acts. It's not just about heralding good news or having it in your mouth. It's actually that you are good news. Like when you walk into the city square or when you walk into work or when you go to school, people are like, wow, that's good news. Like I'm glad that person is there. You're the embodiment of the gospel. They say, Lord, could we be committed to the cause at that level? And obviously the most important place where it all starts is that white hot heart that's set on fire by the Holy Spirit. We say, Spirit, in in our lives, um, this can't just be something that's detached from us. Something we leave Sunday morning and like we don't think about it again until next Sunday morning. No, this this has to become our life, the fire that's burning in our heart. So on the basis of how much God has loved us, we say, Lord, I want to start loving other people. On the basis of how much the gospel's changed my life, Lord, I want to go share that with the next person. And that's, that's something you can pray for, but I do think it's a fire that has to be lit by God. And so you pray, Lord, light the fire. And then, then if you think about it, if, if this is right, the other stuff will all kind of naturally fall into place. You can almost do the other stuff without thinking about it. If, your fire, if, your, if there's fire in your heart, um, you'll be a movement maker, a movement. Uh, you'll, you'll experience it, and, and you'll get to be a part of spreading it. So 13.4, where we'll start next week, is that Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. My question today is who's next? Holy Spirit, what do you want to do within me and through me. Let's take a couple minutes to pray and ask him for the answer to that question. Uh, Spirit, we are open to your leading and since Acts 1 in our walk through here, we've been amazed at your power and the way that you would take average people and move them into places that they wouldn't have expected. But we recognize, Lord, that eventually these stories have to turn into application in our lives. We can't just be content to look back and see what you did. We're asking now, Lord, what do you want to do in our generation 
and in our region. Would you light fires in our hearts that would burn white hot? Would you give us the sense of confidence that we need from you to lay down our distractions, to lay down our presuppositions, and simply to follow you. We look forward to what you'll do. We, we believe that great things are just as possible now as they were back then. We know that we hear about it and we see reports of it from other places in the world and we would love to see it here. We'd love to see it personally. We'd love to be agents of the transformation that you want to bring to this area, to this community, to our neighbors, to our friends, and even into our lives right here. So with that in our hearts, we go today with expectancy, looking for the ways that you will light our fire, looking for the ways that you'll send us and use us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. All right. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday for Acts chapter 13.